Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lights Out Library. My name is Sarah, and I'm so glad you're here. Join me as we explore another chapter in the story of our endlessly fascinating world. I'll be your flight attendant and pilot tonight on this trip to Mars. So please, put your seat in an upright and locked position. Fold up your tray table and make yourself comfortable as we prepare to take off for the Red Planet. Ours will be the first ever manned mission to Mars, and all it requires is your imagination. Don't worry, we'll soon have you home safe and sound in your cozy bed. And if, in the course of our travels, you find yourself getting sleepy, feel free to close your eyes and let yourself go. You can always return to our tale later. Also, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram for announcements and to learn about upcoming topics. During tonight's journey, I will tell you all about our destination, the planet Mars, and the challenges we've had to overcome to make the trip. There's so much we've learned about the energy necessary to go to Mars, as well as to return, how to stay a safe distance from the radiation we will encounter in space, and the challenges of cohabitating with a small group of astronauts for a several months long journey. We will also talk about terraforming as a concept and how we could apply this on Mars. There's so much to discuss tonight and I look forward to taking the trip with you. If you look out the window, you'll see the Earth is already growing smaller and that we've crossed the moon's orbit, but there's still millions of miles to travel before we reach Mars. In future space missions on Lights Out Library, we will have to travel faster than light to reach our destination. In reality, such speeds defy the laws of physics as we currently understand them, and there is good reason to think that humans cannot achieve such speeds. But tonight, traveling at a few percentage points of the speed of light will be enough to complete our round trip. Such a speed has never yet been achieved by humans, but it is at least theoretically possible. So what is the distance between Earth and Mars? There is not a single answer to this question because the distance is constantly changing, even just since you tuned into this story. As the Earth and Mars follow their orbits around the Sun, our distance from each other is constantly changing. Sometimes Earth and Mars are on either side of the Sun, and when this happens, Mars is invisible to us here on Earth. When the two planets are on opposite sides of the Sun, we are at a maximal distance from each other, about 400 million kilometers, which is about 10,000 times the circumference of the Earth. But there are also times when Mars is much closer, when Earth and Mars are aligned on the same side of the Sun. 
In this case, the distance drops to about 55 million kilometers, almost eight times less. This distance is less than 40 million miles, and about every 26 months, Mars and the Earth occupy this closer proximity. That is the optimal time to send a mission to Mars from Earth. But it's important to remember that the distance for a close approach is not always exactly the same because it's just not that simple. The two orbits of Earth and Mars are not on the same plane. They are slightly tilted with respect to one another, and the shapes of these orbits change constantly because they are influenced by the position of other bodies, especially Jupiter, which has a significant influence on the orbit of Mars. On the vast scale of the solar system, within which we must take into account velocities and the influence of all planetary bodies involved, there's a lot of mathematics involved to make accurate estimates. A probe aiming for a destination that is constantly moving millions of miles, must have good knowledge of orbit speeds and all the factors that impact them. With all these elements at play, not all close approaches between Mars and Earth are exactly the same. In 2003, Mars made its closest approach to the Earth in 60,000 years, and won't be that close again until the year 2287. In the meantime, humans will have to travel a greater distance to close the gap between Earth and Mars. NASA has two missions related to Mars in the works. The Artemis mission is meant to establish a U.S. spaceport on the Moon for future deep space launches. The Artemis crew of three Americans and one Canadian will fly by the moon in 2024, then land on the moon in 2025, the first time humans will have done so since 1972. The second mission is known simply as the Mars Sample Return, a campaign to bring samples of Mars soil and rocks back to Earth. Given that probes or spaceships need to return, these missions will need to be planned over several years. It is not possible to just arrive on Mars, land, take samples for a few weeks, and then immediately return, because during that time spent on the planet, the distance from Earth will have increased by millions and millions of miles and the distance, time, and space are not the only elements that matter. The energy needed to land and return is maybe even more important. Even the shortest trip is not necessarily the most realistic or achievable. Storing fuel is complicated, after all. It takes up a lot of room and is heavy, thereby requiring energy in the form of fuel, to transport fuel as part of a spaceship's cargo. 
As soon as spaceflight became possible, astronomers and engineers started studying the most efficient paths into space. When it comes to energy consumption, the most economical way to travel between planets is to jump from one orbit to another, following an elliptical orbit. This kind of transfer is called Hohmann's transfer orbit. A Hohmann transfer orbit was used, for example, by the InSight probe. It requires approximately nine months of travel time from Earth to Mars, then a stay of about 16 to 17 months, waiting for the next transfer window to open, and then another nine months trip to return to Earth. So this is a total of about three years of travel. In order to consume less energy, allowing a ship to return to Earth, a method called ballistic capture is used. When a spacecraft uses Hohmann's transfer orbit, it typically requires the spacecraft to burn fuel in order to slow down when approaching its destination planet because the ship approaches at a speed faster than its destination requiring it to slow down, and which uses a lot of fuel. This fuel has to be transported all the way from Earth, which adds to the complexity and the cost. Ballistic capture, however, uses a different approach, quite literally. Instead of chasing the target planet, a spacecraft is dropped into the destination planet's orbit ahead of the planet, so that when the planet catches up to the craft, the craft can maneuver itself into orbit with the planet using small thrusters for adjustments, which don't require a big expenditure of energy. Another possible method for slowing down spacecraft when they reach their target is a maneuver called aerobraking. Aerobraking consists of flying the craft through the atmosphere, which requires, of course, that the target planet have an atmosphere. At the low point of the orbit, the friction, the drag, as the ship enters the atmosphere, slows down the craft. The advantage of this method is that it uses physics and thereby does not consume more energy than the minimum necessary to position the craft into the right position. So, all of this gives you an idea of the variety of possible means and methods to land on another planet while using the least amount of fuel. I, for one, am impressed by the ingenuity and problem-solving of the engineers working to imagine how humans might one day explore planets outside our own. We are now halfway to our destination. So, before we talk about landing and the environment we will find on Mars, let's take a look at the formation of the planet itself and what it's made of. As you may already know, the dominant theory about the formation of planets in our solar system is that they all started with a large accretion disk, a disk of gases and dust held together and put in motion by gravity. 
most of the mass of the matter concentrated in the center to form the sun, but not all of it. The periphery of this new star was still filled with matter, with dust in orbit around it, and through collisions over millions and millions of years, this dust snowballed into bigger and bigger rocks and boulders. After millions of revolutions around the sun, bigger rocks and protoplanets progressively cleaned up their orbits of dust and smaller bodies by absorbing them or turning them into their satellites, like the moon, asteroids, and comets that make up the Earth's satellites. For Earth, this process is believed to have been completed about four and a half billion years ago. At this point, rocky planets in the solar system had eliminated most of the smaller rocks and boulders in their orbits and had taken on a spherical shape. This globe shape is the result of gravity. Above a certain size, bodies become round, whereas smaller objects like asteroids or comets can maintain other shapes, as they are not large enough to form a ball of matter. It is hard to figure out the history of Mars from Earth. On our planet, we can study and analyze the geological timeline by examining layers of rocks, minerals, and ice. We're not yet able to do anything like that yet on Mars. A few rocks and soil samples can be analyzed via probe, but this does not yield results, anything like the data that core samples can provide. Still, we can hypothesize, and the age of a planet can be estimated by counting its visible number of craters. A higher number and density of craters points to an older terrain. But in Mars' case, intense volcanism has reset the surface terrain over time, erasing craters and other evidence. Mars also had glaciers, wind, and possible running water on its surface in the past, which would have also erased craters. So, with the limited means we have at our disposal, we estimate the age of the surface of Mars to be about 3.8 billion years old, as measured in the planet's southern hemisphere, which is believed to be its oldest intact environment. In the northern hemisphere, the landscape is dominated by large plains that would have appeared much later, after the last waves of bombardment by asteroids. It is believed that after Mars formation, for about 400 million years or 4.5 to 4.1 billion years ago, the planet had a dense atmosphere which formed as the result of impacts from comets and asteroids that released gases from the mantle of the planet. This early atmosphere would have been much denser than the atmosphere of Earth, implying higher pressure, and under these conditions, water vapor in Mars' atmosphere could have condensed into an ocean, possibly even a global ocean but one that existed at higher temperatures, uh, a bit like a pressure cooker. Slowly, though, 
over millions of years, this ocean started to cool and could have created an opportunity for the possible emergence of life around 4.4 to 4.3 billion years ago. But this is purely speculative, based on modeling and with no direct supporting evidence. In any case, the early atmosphere of Mars would have lacked stability, because as the planet continued to cool, the atmosphere would have escaped into space or become incorporated into the surface. With the combination of liquid water and high pressure, the atmosphere would have become thinner and thinner until increasingly cold temperatures would have turned the water into ice during the following 400 million years between 4.1 to 3.7 billion years ago. So new dramatic changes, such as bombardment by asteroids, could have kept happening, like on Earth, in the southern hemisphere of Mars. And the surface of the southern hemisphere would date from this period. Like Earth, Mars likely has a liquid core, made primarily of metal. Metals tend to collect at the center of a planet due to their higher mass. Mars's core is covered by a mantle and a much thinner solid crust. Today, the crust of Mars is estimated to be around 50 kilometers thick. For comparison, the crust of Earth is around 40 kilometers in thickness. Again, this is just an estimate because we can't measure the crust of Mars like we can on Earth. But four billion years ago, the crust was much thinner, and the planet experienced a period of intense volcanic activity. Great volcanoes appeared, one of which we will visit after we land on Mars, Olympus Mons, and this volcanic activity caused fracturing at the surface, and a large rift valley appeared, pulling gases and ash into the atmosphere. The planet would have stopped cooling as the thicker blanket of gases created a greenhouse effect, trapping more solar heat. At this point, clouds likely developed and precipitation that reached the ground. This would help to explain the valleys that were possibly created by running water billions of years ago. At the time, there might also have been lakes that formed in the basins and craters, maybe even an ocean covering the north half of the planet. One clue that points to the existence of such an ocean, or at least to running water, is analysis of rocks on Mars' surface by rovers. These rocks indicate the presence of clay minerals that typically form as the result of prolonged exposure to groundwater during this second period. Another window that opened and allowed for the possible emergence of life happened during the period when there was liquid water on Mars, as well as maybe a magnetic field around the planet, like on Earth. The inside of the planet would have been in motion, like on Earth, 
creating a magnetic dome that would have shielded the planet from radiation. In theory, this would have satisfied several of the conditions that need to be met in order for life to appear. But again, these conditions did not last more than a few dozen million years. Mars is smaller than Earth, and, as a result, cooled down faster. As a result of that cooling, the magnetic dome would have shut down, and the magnetic field would have disappeared. But more challenging to the possibility of life on Mars is the fact that atmospheric conditions continued to change and to deteriorate. With its smaller mass than Earth, and without a magnetic field, Mars just kept losing its atmosphere. It dissipated into space over millions of years, and what remained started to cool down again. With the accumulation of gases like sulfur from volcanic activity, rains that reached the surface would have been increasingly acidic during a period about 800 million years ago until about 3.6 million years ago. This hypothesis is, once again, supported by the analysis of soils that appear to have been altered by acidic groundwater. As temperatures continued to drop, much of the water on the surface of Mars would have frozen, possibly under the planet's surface. Bombardment by asteroids had become less and less frequent over hundreds of millions of years, until they almost stopped completely, like on Earth around the same time. Maybe there were still occasional asteroid impacts that would have melted huge quantities of subsurface ice and caused catastrophic flooding, but this would have been short-lived, as the water would have been reabsorbed into the ground and once again frozen. After a billion and a half years of catastrophic reversals in Mars' appearance and atmosphere, the planets would have then entered a period of relative stability, in the sense that there were no more large-scale geological or climate changes. The surface of Mars was now dry. Not much remained of its previous atmosphere, and the new atmosphere is so thin that there is very little pressure at the surface, which causes any liquid water to instantly vaporize. Over three billion years, there was still erosion caused by powerful winds. Volcanoes occasionally appeared and modified the surface, like they do on Earth. But Mars does not appear to have plate tectonics, as we do on Earth. All of this means that the appearance of Mars may not have changed significantly for a very long time. Now, seen from space, Mars appears red, and the color comes from oxidation of iron in the soil, from rust essentially, giving Mars its nickname, the Red Planet. The poles of Mars remain covered in ice, and the size of these ice continents likely varies over long periods, depending on Mars's distance from the Sun. I'll tell you more about conditions at the surface, but for now it's time to land, because we have reached our destination. 
we were able to travel here quickly. But for astronauts, the journey will take months. Astronauts have prepared for a journey to Mars by completing extended psychological and biological challenges over periods of time that were longer than the amount of time necessary to reach Mars, but this was on the space station in low orbit. The psychological burden of knowing you are traveling farther and farther away from your home planet on a potentially dangerous adventure in an environment that depends heavily on technology for your survival cannot be downplayed. The closest humans have come to this previously was probably those explorers who left Europe by sea in the 15th and 16th centuries, with only their crews, ships, and provisions to face unpredictable oceans and unknown destinations. These ships dealt with mutinies and despair as devastating and unpredictable outcomes took their toll. Now this psychological component can be mitigated through rigorous screening and testing when choosing astronauts to travel to a destination as far away and unknown as Mars. Candidates can be trained and prepared, ensuring a healthy group dynamic to allow for a productive social and psychological environment without which the mission would be compromised before they even left Earth. Biological and physical factors must also be taken into consideration. The human body has not evolved for a life in space, and especially in a zero-gravity environment. The loss of bone and muscle, and the absence of gravity, is not the only factor to consider. There are other aspects that affect our metabolism and our ability to heal, for example, a fractured bone will not heal as easily without gravity. So this is yet another consideration for astronauts undertaking the long journey to Mars. But the biggest potential health issue would be exposure to radiation. On Earth, we are shielded from radiation by our magnetic field and the atmosphere. Radiation comes from streams of tiny particles bits of atoms or energy that exist in space or that come from the sun. The sun is constantly emitting radiation in every direction throughout our solar system, and this represents a big issue for extended space travel because it is hard to fully shield astronauts from this radiation. For example, one day on the International Space Station exposes astronauts to roughly the same amount of radiation as 10 chest X-rays. The human body can withstand this for a day or two with no measurable consequences. But when this lasts for months, damage to the DNA, to the eyes, and the immune system does occur. This exposure is more than enough to increase the risk of cancer, and the ISS is far from the worst place in space. It is at least in low orbit and still within Earth's magnetic field. A craft traveling farther into space will be exposed to exponentially higher and higher doses of radiation, with even more insidious side effects, such as cognitive decline over time, 
making astronauts less able to perform their responsibilities and to adapt to increasing challenges. So what can be done to minimize the exposure to radiation? There is a vest, currently under development, made of materials efficient at blocking free particles like protons. For example, a vest made of polyethylene, which we use to make plastic bottles and is easily manufactured. There are also radiation sensors that could be used to alert astronauts to the presence of higher radiation levels, allowing them to move to more protected areas. Metals currently used to make the hulls of spacecraft are not particularly good at blocking radiation, but other materials in addition to polyethylene work well, for example, hydrogen-rich materials. Ship walls could even just be lined with water tanks. Another solution being explored by scientists is a device that would give each craft its own electromagnetic field. These options all have their own issues, of course, like the fact that water is heavy or that it would take energy to generate an electromagnetic field. Until a solution is found that can consistently and effectively block radiation, long-distance space travel will pose a substantial health risk to astronauts. One day in space, outside of Earth's magnetic field, is equivalent to 700 days of radiation exposure on Earth. So, it's like receiving two years' radiation in a single day. To put it another way, one month outside of Earth's magnetic field without sufficient protection is equivalent to a lifetime of radiation exposure. Hence the need to develop adequate protections without which humans will not be able to travel in space for any prolonged period of time. Now that the first leg of our trip is completed and we are in proximity to Mars, allow me to tell you about the planet's environment. Sometimes the planet experiences extreme dust storms, storms so vast that they cover the entire planet with dense clouds of red dust that make it impossible to see the surface of the planet. This is only one of the challenges that come with Mars's harsh environment. But lucky for us, today is a clear day on Mars, and we are able to see the planet's surface, including its many plains and craters. In the southern hemisphere, we can see mountains and rifts in various shades, ranging from red to brown, except, of course, for the white caps of ice at the poles. These ice caps are composed primarily of water ice, but also contain frozen carbon dioxide, the greenhouse gas that we discuss so much back on Earth. Like Earth, Mars has seasons. Because the planet rotates on an axis that is not perfectly perpendicular to its orbit, it does not always present the same side to the sun. When it is summer for one hemisphere and pole, meaning that one hemisphere and pole are receiving direct sunlight, the other side is plunged into darkness and extreme cold. With such a thin atmosphere, Mars cannot regulate its global temperatures, 
like our atmosphere can back on Earth. And it is due to this extreme cold that the poles, when in darkness, are covered in frozen carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide in Mars' atmosphere freezes and literally falls to the ground. Then, when once again exposed to sunlight, instantly sublimes, that is, turns from a solid back into a gas. The liberated carbon dioxide carries dust with it into the atmosphere and forms clouds that look like cirrus clouds back on Earth, at least until the season changes once again and the cycle repeats itself. We'll continue our exploration of Mars's surface, but first let's land our spacecraft. We'll do so in the manner that future missions to Mars likely will as well, landing in a rocket that will be able to take off after our exploration and return us to our spacecraft, which we left parked in orbit around Mars. Someone drop a pin so we can remember where we left it. Our rocket is one of a dozen small crafts that have successfully landed on Mars since the 1970s. There was Mars 3, sent by the Soviet space program, and Viking 1 and Viking 2, sent by NASA. There was then a long period during which funding and other issues grounded missions to Mars for about 20 years. But in the 1990s, a string of rovers were successfully sent to Mars. Sojourner, Spirit, Opportunity, Curiosity, and, more recently, Perseverance, which landed in February 2021. These missions have dramatically increased our knowledge and understanding of Mars over the past 40 to 50 years through the collection of samples and the cartography made possible by probes in orbit around Mars. The success of these missions has also inflamed interest in sending humans to Mars via public or private organizations, and manned missions are a hot topic in the world of astronautics. Humans likely won't be sent to Mars within the next ten years, but after that, who knows? And this raises the question of whether or not it's even a good idea, if it's worth it despite the cost, which would easily top $500 billion. Never mind the risks of failure, the risks to human health, and the question of whether or not it's wise to invest so much to send humans to Mars when we still have so many pressing issues to solve here on Earth. As for the cost, $500 billion represents just two days of global economic activity. Are two days of global human labor worth the effort to expand human understanding of the universe? and to set foot on a whole new planet. It doesn't seem like much when looked at this way. The amount could also be seen as a worthwhile investment in developing the technologies of the future that will no doubt have applications beyond a trip to Mars. Still, the amount is well above the budget of any one space agency or private investor, and would certainly not be financially profitable there are also resources on Mars that humans may wish to exploit, like metals, water, and possible other unknown materials 
that we have yet to discover. There's likely no treasure, though. A mission to Mars would be for the advancement of science and knowledge, less than for financial enrichment. There is also the option to establish a permanent human presence on Mars. It has been argued that human populations on other planets will be essential to reduce our risk of extinction, if we want to consider that part of our intended goal. Because, apart from that, there are still plenty of places left on Earth that remain unpopulated by humans, such as the poles and Arctic regions, deserts, or even the bottom of the ocean, that would be cheaper and easier to develop than the alien environment of a different planet. These climates on Earth, however remote and inhospitable seeming, are still far more welcoming to humans than the extremes of Mars, where the lack of atmosphere and farther distance from the sun will require us to wear pressurized suits to go outside and will make it miserably cold, an average of minus 60 degrees Celsius. Even at the equator, where temperatures could reach 70 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 degrees Celsius during the day in sunlight, at night, temperatures in those same locations drop to far, far below freezing. And as humans adapted to breathe oxygen, the atmosphere, which is 95% carbon dioxide and 10 times less dense than on Earth, leaves us with nothing to breathe. Add to this the radiation and massive dust storms that can rage for weeks, and any human inhabitants would likely have to live underground, or at the very least in anti-radiation domes. We would desperately need to find water from which to extract oxygen, as well as to drink and to water crops for food production. We would have to produce energy, likely from solar panels, which would work as long as the sun wasn't hidden from sight by dust storms or the planet's orbit and rotation didn't place our colonies on the dark side of the planet. Our habitats would have to be pressurized. The list of reasons why it wouldn't work goes on and on. For the same amount of money, humans could much more easily develop an entire underground or underwater city that could exist and function independently from the rest of the world. It doesn't sound useful, and no one would invest in this. But if the stated goal is to gain habitable living space for humans to protect us from extinction, we could more easily do so on Earth. But still, the challenge is an interesting one, and I am personally conflicted. The part of me that loves Earth wants to see us humans do a better job caring for and preserving our home. The part of me that loves adventure and outer space wants to witness the exploration of our solar system and beyond. I hope the two are not mutually exclusive, as it seems that the conditions that allow for the existence of life must be possible on other planets. For now at least, a base and a few scientists seem possible on Mars, if not inevitable, and it remains to be seen what we could achieve beyond that initial goal. 
One vision of the future includes the idea of transforming Mars or other planets to support life and to better resemble Earth. This concept is called terraforming, and we still don't know if it's just a pipe dream or a real possibility. The idea was first introduced in science fiction in the 1940s, followed by the first notable scientific article on the topic in 1961 by the renowned astronomer Carl Sagan. In his article, Sagan proposed a theoretical means of transforming the planet Venus to make it habitable. At the time, Venus was known to have a very dense atmosphere that created a powerful greenhouse effect, and which meant that temperatures at the surface of the planet were unbearably hot. The composition of the atmosphere was roughly known to contain water, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide. So Sagan proposed the idea of seeding Venus's atmosphere with algae. The atmosphere is so dense that the algae would have remained aloft and not fallen to the ground to be incinerated by the intense heat. Algae would have converted the atmosphere's components into organic compounds by feeding on them, especially the carbon dioxide. This would have progressively removed CO2 from the atmosphere, reducing the greenhouse effect and causing temperatures to drop to a more comfortable level. The carbon would remain trapped in the algae, which would then fall to the surface, forming a blanket of organic matter. Oxygen would then rise, making the air breathable. As clever a theory as this was, it was later proven that it couldn't work because Venus clouds are actually rich in sulfuric acid, which would have destroyed the algae. Another, even more insurmountable problem is that the atmosphere of Venus is just too dense. Algae might break carbon dioxide into carbon and oxygen, but oxygen would stay high, whereas pure carbon would fall to the surface, be incinerated, then return to the atmosphere as a gas. Sagan also proposed a terraforming project for Mars in the 1970s, and because Mars is the only planet in our solar system similar to Earth, the idea of terraforming Mars has stayed around for decades. As we discussed earlier, it's not impossible that Mars once had an Earth-like environment in its distant past, with a thicker atmosphere and possibly liquid water. If the mechanisms that caused this change happened, then maybe they could be reversed. I told you earlier that the likely reason Mars lost most of its atmosphere is because there is no magnetic field, allowing the atmosphere to be carried away by solar winds. Mars also has less gravity than Earth, 60% less gravitational pull at its surface than on Earth. So something that weighs 100 pounds on Earth weighs only 38 pounds on Mars. People walking on the surface would not be able to make huge leaps like astronauts on the moon, but would still definitely feel much lighter than on Earth. But this also means that the atmosphere is less bound to the planet than on other planets of similar size. 
And finally, the last reason Mars lost so much of its atmosphere is due to the abundance of carbon dioxide. When there is carbon dioxide in an atmosphere, and water is also present, the CO2 tends to react with rocks on the surface to form carbonates, which are solid salts. This reaction tends to draw the atmosphere off and to bind it to the surface. This also happens on Earth, but volcanic activity that ejects new gases into Earth's atmosphere creates a kind of balance, ensuring that the Earth's atmosphere doesn't get eroded by overabsorption at the surface. So, it's as a result of all these various effects that Mars' atmosphere was either carried off into space or absorbed by the planet itself. Mars has too much mass, too little volcanic activity, and the absence of a magnetic field. And these are issues that cannot simply go away or be worked around. For these reasons, it appears far too complicated to try to give Mars an Earth-like atmosphere, because, even assuming we had the money and technology to achieve it, the new atmosphere would require constant maintenance and adjustments to stay in a normal range. It would continually trend toward thinning, toward extreme cold, toward darkness. Even if the atmosphere on Mars were the same as on Earth, it would still not be enough to raise the temperature above zero degrees Celsius, and water will forever remain frozen. Even if all of that could be overcome, the soil on Mars contains too much chlorine and is actually toxic to humans. The soil would have to be chemically modified to be suitable for agriculture. The number of hurdles is overwhelming, and at least for the moment, insurmountable by humans. We don't have the energy, the equipment, the resources, human or otherwise, to make the entire planet habitable. But still, let's imagine it for a moment. What methods would we employ to terraform Mars? The starting point would have to be generating a greenhouse effect that is currently mostly absent on Mars. Injecting gases into the atmosphere would trap solar heat near the surface and help to kick-start the process of global heating, allowing water at the poles and underground to one day melt. These additional gases would also increase the planet's air pressure and make it more bearable for humans. At the present moment, Mars' pressure is just 1% of that on Earth, so a pressurized suit is still absolutely necessary. But if this pressure could reach just 25%, it would be sufficient. There are compounds with a significant greenhouse effect, like ammonia and hydrocarbons, that are abundant in our solar system and which could be imported to Mars. We know where to find them, like, for example, on the moons of Jupiter. But these components are relatively light, and it could be hard, especially early on, to make them stick around the planet. Another option would be to release gases with very powerful greenhouse effects into the atmosphere, 
like fluorine compounds. These include the infamous chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, that on Earth were notorious for attacking the ozone layer. But besides their ability to cause harm on Earth, they are also very powerful greenhouse gases and, in fact, are thousands of times more powerful than carbon dioxide. Fluorine is already present in Mars' crust, in higher quantities than on Earth, as far as we know. So, another idea could be to manufacture these compounds from the materials present in Mars' soil, and then to release them into the atmosphere, or another way to send rockets with payloads of compressed CFCs. When it comes to warming the planet, a proposed solution is to use orbital mirrors to redirect more sunlight to Mars' surface. The mirrors could also be aimed at the poles and their layers of solid CO2 to try to sublimate it to help kickstart the greenhouse effect. Another necessity would be to oxygenate the atmosphere once it is dense enough. Science fiction frequently uses the idea of seeding the planet with algae, or vegetation in general. This would help, but it's not really sufficient because the net production of oxygen by terrestrial plants is actually quite small, even on Earth. Plants reabsorb oxygen at night, and in fact, on Earth, more than two-thirds of the oxygen is produced by the ocean. So, liquid water would probably be necessary to fill the atmosphere of Mars with oxygen. And vegetation that could initially resist the extreme conditions of low pressure and cold temperatures would have to be introduced. An alternative solution would be to create oxygen from water in industrial facilities. As you know, oxygen, along with hydrogen, is the main component in water. And finally, even if we managed to sort out all of these issues, Mars will still always have a problem retaining its atmosphere. So the idea of an artificial magnetic field was proposed, which could, in theory, be achieved with superconducting rings built around the planet. This is, of course, all very theoretical. You can likely tell that the idea of terraforming Mars is one that is not eminently achievable. Still, potential technical solutions are not completely out of reach and could become viable one day if humans develop the source of cheap and limitless energy, for example, by harvesting the sun's energy or through cold fusion. Before we finish our exploration of Mars and return home, I promised to take you to one of Mars' volcanoes. Mars may be smaller than Earth, but it is home to one of the largest and tallest volcanoes known in our solar system, Olympus Mons. Olympus Mons is an enormous shield volcano. That is to say, a volcano with a very wide base made of lava from past eruptions. Olympus Mons has a surface as big as Italy or Great Britain, and its peak is 26 kilometers, or 16 miles high. That's more than twice the height of Mount Everest, 
and it's believed that such a large volcano was able to form due to the absence of plate tectonics on Mars. On Earth, a lot of the pressure and energy in the Earth's crust are released from between the Earth's plates, and volcanoes on Earth are therefore not eternal, but part of a moving plate and may one day disappear in the very long term. But when the mechanism of plate tectonics doesn't exist, a volcano can stay in place and continue to release lava for hundreds of millions of years. This is likely why Olympus Mons has achieved its extraordinary size. And this is interesting, too, because if lava keeps reaching the surface of Mars, and assuming there are pockets of water trapped underground, then in some unknown location there may be water heated by geothermal heating, which means there may be life. But that's a bigger question for another day. There are so many interesting facts I could share about Mars. We are living through an exciting period for space travel and exploration. After initially going to the moon and sending various probes deep into our solar system in the 1960s, the space race slowed. But after decades of low activity, we are now seeing a resurgence of interest, both from the public and private sectors. Though developments may seem slow to the public, due to the years it takes to plan and execute a space mission, on an historical scale, we are returning to the kind of excitement and race to the finish line that we experienced in the 1950s and 60s. I wonder what will happen next. As for us, it's time to return to Earth. We have reached the end of our journey for tonight, and I, for one, am ready to change out of my spacesuit and into some comfy pajamas, happy to be an Earthling again. Our trip to Mars was a long one, full of the wonders of the Red Planet. I hope that, as you rest, our story seeds the atmosphere of your conscious mind and terraforms your dreams transforming the rocky, jumbled surface of your thoughts into a lush and habitable dreamland. Sleep well, dear friends. <laughs>